0: and welcome to episode number nine of the Anno Domini podcast, a podcast dedicated to the supremacy of Christ over all things, including our days, weeks, and months. Join me as we explore how Christ is revealed through the cyclical life of the church calendar year. We'll discover how this calendar once structured culture and how it can again. We'll also discuss practical ways to observe and celebrate these holy days in our quest to glorify God and live the good life in the midst of all the good He has given us. Welcome back, friends. My name is Joe Stout. And my wife and I and our eight children live in the wet and occasionally, every now and then, sunny Pacific Northwest. So for those of you who may be new, uh, this podcast, the Anno Domini podcast, Anno Domini literally means in the year of our Lord. This podcast explores the year of the Lord as it has been traditionally marked on the church calendar. Our first episode, just to give a little bit of history, our first episode started at the beginning of the church new year, which this cycle happened to fall on December 1st, 2019. And unlike our modern tradition of marking January as the new beginning, the church calendar marks the first Sunday of Advent, or the coming of Christ into a dark world, Uh, the church calendar marks the first Sunday of Advent as the perpetual new beginning. So we begin by celebrating the coming of Christ in his various ways through Advent, Uh, not just him coming as a baby, but him coming in various forms. And since the dates are different each year, every year Advent starts on a new date, there's usually a new day for Easter, certain movable feast days, others are fixed feast days, like Christmas always, of course, comes on uh, December 25th, Uh, Epiphany always comes on January 6th, those kinds of things. But after Advent comes, of course, Christmas tide or Christmas time, there's 12 days of Christmas, and then there's the period of Epiphany, which is the revealing of Christ unto a broken world. And that falls from January 6th through February 25th, this season at least. Ash Wednesday, which this year fell on February 26th, uh, marked the beginning of the season of Lent, the season in which we find ourselves right now. Now, going back to last episode, I remarked in the last episode, quote, The time of Lent precedes the victory of Christ on the cross. Jesus was tempted for 40 days was humbled to the point of death on a cross, and during all of this, faithfully obeyed his Father in heaven. Because he was faithful in this, God raised him up to glory, and Christ, our elder brother, calls us to follow the same path. Close quote. So as we enter Holy Week, the culmination of Lent, let us remember the promise of God found in James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. As I pointed out in the last episode, the period from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday is 40 days, not including the Lord's Days each week. This means that Palm Sunday is a unique holy day in that it falls within the Lenten season, but being that it is on a Sunday, any fasting would be abstained from since the Lord's Day is meant to be celebrated with feasting and rest, not with fasting. Palm Sunday kicks off Holy Week which is the big finale of the Lenten season. And it concludes, the season of Lent concludes on Easter morning, for reasons that I'm sure you can figure out, but we'll talk about later. All right, so now since the Anno Domini podcast centers around how we are to practically celebrate these holy days, we want to figure out some practical things, I really need to give an account, at least for posterity's sake, of the current events surrounding Palm Sunday 2020 which are unheard of, I think, ever. As of the recording of this episode, we are watching a local, national, and global historic event unfold. I'm, of course, speaking of the Chinese virus, the coronavirus that began in Wuhan, China in 2019 and has spread around the globe. This virus is causing governments, gripped by fear, to self-immolate entire economies. They're isolating people to their homes and hospital beds, and most egregious of all, they're forbidding the gathering of people anywhere and everywhere for any reason at all. Now, I understand there are reasons for it. There are reasons for the quarantine, and they're hoping to save lives and stop the spread of this virulent bug. But for Christians, this means that for the last several weeks, showing up for the Lord's Day service has been impossible for nearly everyone. Now, because technology is often a blessing when used rightly, many churches, ours included, have offered a live stream of a Sunday morning sermon. And this is nice and and kind of helps stave off that feeling of isolation that can sometimes come about with a kind of a self-induced quarantine. But a sermon is certainly not church. The gathering of a family to hear a sermon Falls far short of our needed weekly gatherings. On Ash Wednesday, nearly a month before this madness began, I shared a hymn written by G.K. Chesterton that included the phrase quote, Take not thy thunder from us, but take away our pride. Close quote. Never in my life have I seen a prayer answered on such a large scale in such a short time. As I said on Ash Wednesday, quote, Our rulers here on earth are faltering failures, and we as a people are drifting and dying because our walls, made of gold and our prosperity, are actually entombing us. Scorn is a weapon to divide brother against brother. We are asking God not to spare his wrath or his thunder against us, but instead to take away the one thing that is causing all of this mess— our pride. close quote. One of the many things that this global pandemic fear has exposed is the frailty of our reality. We think the things we know, the things that we are familiar to us all, we think those things will last. The good times will never end. Well, now that's an easy lie to believe. Our walls of gold, as enduring as the morning mist, We're entombing us into a false sense of security. Now, as we shelter in place at the beginning of what is likely to be an unnecessary but very large economic depression, we can still take joy. God has heard our prayers. Instead of allowing the walls of gold to entomb us forever, He is stripping away the pride of life that has caused such rebellion in our hearts. What an exciting time! To be alive. I I mean, seriously, I can't stress enough what a blessing this chastisement has the potential to accomplish. Now, I I say potential because it won't accomplish this, it won't accomplish the right response in everyone. But for Christians, if we humble ourselves before God during this time of suffering, He promises to lift us up and to strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. With the unknown, comes a temptation to great fear. And in fact, fear is the natural response. Those without the blessing of Christ's covering will respond with fear because that is the only way the natural man knows how to respond. But we are Christians, and we believe that the providence of God can be waited on expectantly to provide for us our daily bread. We also can now trust God to provide for us a life stripped of those things which prevent us from trusting Him. We also can trust God during this time to send His Spirit to awaken in us a devotion to Him that often proves impossible during times of plenty. As someone amusingly said uh, in reference to the paralyzing fear surrounding this virus, they said, I wasn't quite ready to give up this much for Lent. Of course, we know that Lent is not about giving things up, it's about begging God to do whatever it takes, to take whatever it takes, to trust, follow, and obey him in all that he commands. So let us receive this discipline from the Lord joyfully, knowing that he scourges every son he receives. So, practically speaking, what can we do this Palm Sunday since we won't be allowed to actually worship as the body of Christ? Well, This is not ideal, but the things that have been helpful for the Stout family has been to try and treat Sunday morning as much like a Lord's Day morning as possible. So we get up, we get dressed, we eat breakfast, and then we gather together to worship the King of Glory. Now, we try not to treat our Sunday morning worship too casually. This is already a major temptation for modern Christians, and it only gets worse when you can't leave your home. Therefore, there is no watching the sermon in pajamas, uh, just as you shouldn't go to church in your pajamas. Um, our church actually provides some songs to sing together, and we, we like to sing along heartily during that. There's no, there's no shame in singing along with the TV. We're doing, we're doing the best we can with the technology we've got. Uh, one thing we do is, uh, for those of you who have kids, we hold our kiddos to the same standards of sitting still and not talking during the sermon, just as we would uh, in church. So we don't, we don't ever send our kids to children's church. We never send them to the nursery. They are expected to sit quietly and to listen to the sermon as best they can, and um, to, to uh, this is the one time throughout the week when they are really expected to, to show up too. Uh, and so really this is inadequate. This is really inadequate for the long haul, uh, but it is better than nothing. Um, and if one had to describe the essential reason for the Lord's Day worship— this is why it's inadequate, really. Uh, if you had to, if you had to describe or argue the essential reason for the weekly Lord's Day worship, I would argue that the sermon, and the praise and worship, the singing, are are really pointing to the pinnacle of the service, which is actually the Lord's Supper, and we're going to talk about this in our next episode on Holy Thursday, because uh, that all surrounds the Last Supper. But I will, and I'll develop my argument more there. But just suffice it to say that I'm persuaded, and I'm certainly not alone, that the sermon, the singing, the confession of sin, is all leading us towards one major event. And that event is to eat a meal of peace with our king. Paul tells us we were alienated from God and we were his enemies, but for the death and resurrection of Christ, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, we have been brought near to him. And this weekly meal represents this. It represents the fact that we are no longer at war with God, but that through Christ we now have peace with him. It tells us that we belong to the king and that we belong at the king's table. This, unfortunately, cannot truly be done at home, at least not in the way it's been instituted. Uh, It's been instituted to be overseen by the elders of your local church. And because of this, doing it in your home privately by yourself is not really the Lord's Supper. It's not really the communion of the saints. So let us pray that the quarantine lockdown fears and hysteria will end and that we can go back to the Lord's table where those who have been baptized and are claimed by Christ and who claim Christ as King, let us pray that we can go back to the table where we belong. There are several texts to choose from on Palm Sunday, so we've been reading from the lectionary every, every episode, um, and so we have a reading this week from Isaiah, from the Psalms, from Philippians, and then the Gospel of John. And if you're listening to this, it's likely that you've heard the account of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. In the three of the Gospels, we are told that as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the colt, the people welcomed him with praise and received him as a king. In fact, they were spreading their clothes on the ground as well as laying down branches of trees, and in John's Gospel, those branches are referred to as palm branches. So this is Christ coming as king into Jerusalem, and for a large number of the city's inhabitants— He was rightfully received as king. And you know, there's a narrative out there that says something like this. The people welcome him as king on Palm Sunday, and then they demand his death come Good Friday. And that really, I don't believe that really is true. I think that uh, he was rightfully received as king by his faithful. But we know there were other forces at work in the city, and that the leaders of the Jews were consumed... With envy and hatred of Jesus. And so the Lord's faithful were celebrating the coming of the king. So while they were doing that, while they were celebrating the coming of the king, others were biding their time and waiting for their opportunity to strike down the king of glory. So our lectionary reading is from Psalm 118, and it speaks of this very thing. So let's read the very word of God. Psalm 118, we're gonna be reading verses 19 through 29. Open to me the gates of righteousness, I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me, and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That's the word of the Lord. So, in this psalm, we are told that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, this is a verse that is often quoted in the New Testament. And, in fact, in, it's referenced in each of the synoptic gospels. Uh, and it's, it's referenced as the culminating meaning behind one of the parables that Jesus tells the parable of the tenants. So, it was told by Jesus. After he had entered Jerusalem in triumph, the, the coming of the King, uh, Palm Sunday, what we're celebrating on Palm Sunday, he, uh, he tells this story after coming into the into the, the city, but of course before he was betrayed into the hands of the Jews. And so, if you remember, Jesus tells the story of, of of a vineyard that had been planted, and that the care of which was entrusted to a specific group of people. In the story, these tenants are the Jews. And when harvest time came, the master sent servants to collect some of the fruit. The tenants beat and treated shamefully all of the servants the master of the vineyard sends. Uh, These servants represent the way in which the Jews treated God's chosen prophets and servants and messengers shamefully. In fact, at his trial prior to his death, Stephen speaks these devastating words to the Jewish leaders. He says, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? The answer is, of course, none. So back to the story. So the, the, the Jews rejected all of the servants that the, all of the prophets that God had sent. And so in the story, the tenants reject all of the servants that the master sends. And finally, in the parable, the master of the vineyard decides to send his only son, thinking, well, perhaps they will respect him. Quite the opposite happens, though. If you know the story, you know that the tenants reach the pinnacle of their wickedness and throw the son out of the vineyard and kill him. And they do this thinking that they were securing the inheritance for themselves. But instead, what does happen? Instead, they've basically planted the seed of their own ruin as the master is going to eventually come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And so this speaks of the way God removed the Jews from the special status of his chosen people and grafted in the Gentiles in their place. And and the reason why we know this is because Jesus finishes the the parable of the tenants by quoting Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And he attaches the meaning of this to the nation of Israel at the time, and, and we know this because it was at this time, after this parable, that that uh, in the gospel it says, "Quote the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them." Close quote. The reason why this matters. Uh, The reason why this this story matters and uh, the parable matters and Palm Sunday matters, and the reason why it matters is that Jesus is not a safe person to be around. It's important that we know that. Jesus is not a safe person to be around. In fact, he's the kind of friend that is absolutely going to get you in trouble with the people in charge. The Lion of Judah is dangerous. And although he is good, following him really means choosing a life following a life of exchanging your own desires for those desires that he gives you. Desires that will mean suffering. Jesus is a conquering king, and when we follow him, we are actually following him into battle. Now, this battle is against the desires of the flesh, the lust of the world, the pride of life. It's against even Satan himself. But it's a battle that we can gladly and joyfully follow our King Jesus into, knowing that it will cost us our lives. Palm Sunday, as I said earlier, is the beginning of Holy Week. It's the finale of Lent, and during regular times, when we're uh, gathering for worship is not outlawed, uh, there can often be services every day of the week. Uh, In Protestant Christianity, there's usually not that many. Uh, there's at, usually at least a Good Friday service, uh, although unfortunately those are becoming less frequent as well. Good Friday is a really is a really important day but a lot a lot of times there'll be a Wednesday night service as well as a Thursday night service for Monday Thursday uh, then Good Friday and then there's even Holy Saturday and then oftentimes and this is really cool um, is when churches will do like an, a morning uh, kind of a sunrise service. now, here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, generally Easter morning is not met with the sunrise. It's met with rain and clouds, so it's a little bit less fun to do a sunrise service when the sun doesn't actually come up. But sunrise services are really cool too. But, but the Holy Week really culminates with Easter morning, and then we're into a new part of the church calendar. And so Palm Sunday through Holy Saturday are the final parts of uh, Holy Week and the final parts of Lent. Um, And so what's what's kind of interesting is um, during Palm Sunday, often the churches will be decorated with branches, uh, sometimes palm branches. Other times they'll use like boxwood or olive olive branches. They'll decorate the church. Sometimes the congregation will march in with palm branches. Uh, I'm saying this more from what I've read, not from what I've experienced. Uh, I've not experienced anything beyond um, like a uh, Palm Sunday service that is ex, it kind of uh, expressly celebrating Palm Sunday, but not doing a lot of the liturgical things. Uh, one, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that uh, in the denominations that celebrate Ash Wednesday, usually the branches that they will use uh, in worship on Palm Sunday, usually they'll actually keep those until the following Ash Wednesday, and then they'll burn those those palm, palm leaves or the palm branches or whatever the branches were that they used and they'll use the burned ashes from the palm fronds to mark the, the penitent for the beginning of Lent. Uh, if you want to know more about Ash Wednesday, you can look at the last episode. Uh, but this is this is used, I, I believe, the reasoning behind saving the, the palm fronds or the branches from the previous Palm Sunday and using to Ash Wednesday is to show how cyclical the life of the Christian is. It's, it helps Christians understand and realize that the the, the life of the church— uh, is is marked by patterns, patterns that God gives us to follow. Now, of course, um, those that are set out by the church, oftentimes, things like Easter and Christmas, those are, those are voluntary days. They're not set out by Scripture itself, but Scripture definitely um, gives us patterns to follow, and the culmination of Lent with Holy Week, starting with Palm Sunday, is one of those things, and it reminds us as Christians that God has given us these patterns so that we might faithfully follow him and we might become more like him, the maker of patterns. During our segment on the biblical text for Palm Sunday, the theme of warfare came up frequently. And the fact that Christ comes riding on the branches of trees is not a coincidental occurrence. In fact, in two places in the Old Testament— Um, There is a record of an event that bears certain uncanny similarities. Uh, Both can be found similar, similar accounts in 1 Chronicles 14 and 2 Samuel 5. But in those accounts, we read this story, very word of God. And the Philistines yet again made a raid in the valley. And when David again inquired of God, God said to him, "'You shall not go up after them. "'Go around and come against them opposite the balsam trees.'" And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then go out to battle, for God has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as God commanded, and they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Gezer. And the fame of, Dis- of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. Word of the Lord. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem... So I want, to, I want you to see the similarities here. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, riding on the tops of the trees, just as he had done against the Philistines, you know, he's, they're laying down the palm trees, they're laying down the branches for him to ride on. Well, he's riding in the tops of the trees symbolically. As he comes riding into Jerusalem, we are told in the various gospel accounts of his actions, what followed him being received as king. There are, there are many. One of them is that he curses the fig tree which was a symbol of the nation of Israel. And the curse was that they would be cut off for their unbelief and bear fruit no longer. Then then we're told that he is weeping over Jerusalem. He is looking at Jerusalem and he's weeping over Jerusalem because he knows of its coming destruction, of the destruction that will come in just a few short decades. 70 AD came and Jerusalem was destroyed. It was sacked. In the nation of Israel that we read about in the Old Testament really ceased to exist. Uh, after this, he goes into the temple and he makes war on those who would turn his father's house into a den of thieves. These are the actions of a king going forth to war. The only gospel that doesn't mention uh, these things, the cursing of the fig tree, weeping over Jerusalem, clearing out the temple, the only, the only gospel that doesn't mention those is the gospel of John, who chooses instead to focus on the imagery of a seed dying to bring forth a harvest. If the seed remains alone, if the seed doesn't die, it remains alone, but if it dies, it brings forth a harvest. So during his triumphal entry, Jesus had one thing on his mind, going to war. He was going to wage war against the domain of darkness in a way that not even Satan could have seen coming. He was going to die for the sins of his people. All of that is an entrance of sorts into the hymn we'll be exploring today, which was written in 1812 by Reginald Heber, called The Son of God Goes Forth to War. The song is a wonderful encouragement for the church militant. Uh, Church militant means those of us in the body, uh, those of us who belong to the body of Christ, who are still on earth doing battle for the king as opposed to the church triumphant, who are in glory with God now. Um, So let's take a look at the words. It says this, The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar, who follows in his train? Who best can drink his cup of woe, triumphant over pain? Who patient bears his cross below, he follows in his train. The martyr first, whose eagle eye? Could pierce beyond the grave, who saw his master in the sky and called on him to save? Like him, with pardon on his tongue, in midst of mortal pain, he prayed for them that did the wrong. Who follows in his train? A glorious band, the chosen few on whom the Spirit came. Twelve valiant saints, their hope they knew, and mocked the cross and flame. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. They bowed their necks. The death to feel. Who follows in their train? A noble army, men and boys, the matron and the maid, around the Savior's throne rejoice in robes of light arrayed. They climb the steep ascent of heaven through peril, toil, and pain. O God, to us may grace be given to follow in their train. So we have in this hymn Christ setting the example by being the first to go to war. And to gain his crown of glory. He of course accomplished this upon the cross, which is why Paul tells us that he is seated in power, reigning right now. He's reigning at the right hand of God. Not it's not that he will reign one day, of course he will reign, he'll reign forever and ever, but that he's reigning right now. And he will continue to reign, Paul assures us, until all enemies have been vanquished and the world has been converted to Christ, and only the last enemy remains, death itself. It's then and only then that Christ will return, vanquish the final enemy, unite heaven and earth in glorious renewal, and the dead will be raised again to glory for the final judgment. The hymn writer is continually asking, who will follow in his train? This is another way of asking who will follow after the king or who will follow his example. So in verse 1, those who are able to follow in his train are those who are ready to drink his cup of woe and to be patient and bear the cross of Christ in this temporal life. Verse 2 tells the story of the first hero of the faith, Stephen who could see, quote, beyond the grave or through the temporal things that so often distract us to what is real to what really matters. Stephen could see past that. He could see through the grave. He could see through the impending death that was coming. In fact, We're told Christ beckoned to Stephen as he was being stoned, and Stephen, just like his master, just like Jesus, asked God to forgive those who did the wrong, even while he was in the pain of death. Who will follow his example? Verse 3 tells the story of the twelve apostles. These were valiant men upon whom uh, had come the Spirit of Christ. These twelve men, unlike any men before or after, were chosen by Christ and were given immense suffering to endure for the cross. Some were fed to lions, some were slain with a sword. We are told that they bowed their necks, their death to feel. In, in other words, they were not afraid to die, nor were they going to run away from the great Commission. You see, they remembered that Christ had charged them with going into all the world and baptizing the nations. as Peter famously said with his life on the line, Talking to the Jews, his life is on the line. He says, we must obey God rather than men. And finally, in verse 4, we hear of the multitudes that have given their lives for Christ in humble and faithful obedience to him. We are told men, boys, women, girls, anyone claimed by Christ through baptism that has gone before us and is with him in paradise are now rejoicing around the throne of Christ in glorious garments. We are also told how they got there through a steep climb toward eternity during their earthly life, experiencing peril, toil, and pain during the journey. The hymn concludes by asking God to give us, the church militant, the grace to follow in their train. So with that, I will play this hymn, and I look forward to seeing you for our next episode exploring Maundy Thursday, or Holy Thursday. I hope that Christ fills you with encouragement as you worship Him this Lord's Day in your homes, and that we will soon find ourselves worshiping together once more in the beauty of holiness.
1: The Son of God goes forth to war A kingly crown to gain His blood-red banner streams afar Who follows in his train Who best can drink his cup of woe Triumphant over pain Who patient bears his cross That's of life